Welcome to Between the Lines, presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. I'm Scott Harris. This week we present Katrina Vandenhovel, editorial director and publisher of The Nation magazine, who discusses current efforts to reach a diplomatic solution to the threat of war in Ukraine. Jason Stanley, professor of philosophy at Yale University and author of the book, How Fascism Works, who assesses the Republican Party's transformation into a political organization, which is today systematically plotting the destruction of American democracy. And U.S. political prisoner Leonard Peltier's attorney, Kevin Sharp, who talks about his client's recent diagnosis with COVID and the campaign asking President Biden for executive clemency. But first, we begin with a summary of some of the week's underreported news stories. Two months ahead of France's April 10th presidential election, incumbent Emmanuel Macron faces multiple challenges as a wave of Islamophobia sweeps the country. Macron is projected to win re-election against multiple far-right candidates, including Marie Le Pen and right-wing media pundit Eric Zemmour. Meanwhile, the French left is in disarray. Only a decade after socialist president François Hollande was elected and led the way to approval of same-sex marriage in 2013. In recent polls, Macron leads the field in the first round of the presidential election with 25% of the vote, followed by far-right candidate Marie Le Pen, tied with center-right candidate Valérie Pécresse and far-right commentator Eric Zemmour trailing. Further down in the polls are several candidates on the left, led by Jean-Luc Mélenchon, at 10%. However, Macron is seen as vulnerable with a 37% approval rating. Voters who elected Macron in May 2017 viewed him as representing a blend of social democratic and liberal conservative ideology. But as The Guardian reports, the president's pro-business policies have disappointed many on the left which led to the populist Yellow Jacket movement, driven by anger over rising inequality and opposition to the government's carbon tax on fuel. France, with Europe's largest Muslim population, has seen a rise in anti-immigrant hatred, amplified by Eric Zemmour, who was convicted in January on charges of inciting racial hatred after declaring on TV that unaccompanied child migrants were thieves, rapists, and murderers. North Korea confirmed news reports that they launched an intermediate-range ballistic missile on January 31st, the same weapon it had once threatened to target the U.S. territory of Guam. This was a seventh such test recently conducted by North Korea and the first time a nuclear-capable missile of that size has been launched since 2017. The missile tests have unnerved South Korea, Japan, and the U.S., United Nations Secretary General Antonio Guterres condemned the test for breaking a 2018 moratorium on long-range missile tests and said it was a clear violation of UN Security Council resolutions. 
Washington, which has expressed concern that North Korea's escalating missile tests could be a precursor to resumed tests of nuclear weapons and intercontinental ballistic missiles, vowed an unspecified response designed to demonstrate America's commitment to its allies. North Korea has said it is open to diplomacy, but that U.S. overtures are undermined by its support for sanctions, joint military drills, and an offensive arms buildup in South Korea and the region. In his first month in office, New York City Mayor Eric Adams, who ran on a get-tough-on-crime platform, is facing a dramatic rise in gun violence and the late January fatal shootings of two police officers. It comes as other big city mayors and the Biden administration are confronting escalating violent crime and an increase in homicides in New York, Chicago, and Los Angeles. President Biden, who recently visited New York Police Department headquarters, underscored the urgent need to shut down the iron pipeline route used to smuggle illegal firearms from loosely regulated southern states to New York and the Northeast. According to The New Yorker, 20,000 people were killed in gun violence in 2021, an increase from the record number set in 2020, when homicides spiked by roughly 30 percent from the previous year. Most of those killed are young people of color in poor communities. Republicans who accuse Democrats of being soft on crime predictably are using the issue to win votes in this November's midterm elections. The U.S. Department of Justice has created five regional strike forces to combat illegal gun trafficking, but is facing resistance from Republican-controlled states where some local prosecutors are refusing to participate in tracing guns used in crimes. Last year, Missouri's GOP-controlled state legislature passed a bill prohibiting local law enforcement officials from participating in federal programs that trace the illegal sale of firearms. This week's news summary was compiled by Bob Nixon. For Between the Lines, I'm Anna Manzo. In an effort to de-escalate the volatile situation in Ukraine, French President Emmanuel Macron embarked on a diplomatic offensive the first week of February. After almost six hours of talks with Russian President Vladimir Putin in Moscow, Macron arrived in Kiev on February 8th for talks with Ukraine's President Vladimir Zelensky. After his meeting in Moscow, President Macron said Mr. Putin had given him assurances that Russia would not make any aggressive moves against Ukraine, a comment the Kremlin later disavowed. In addition to Russia's demand that NATO bar Ukraine from becoming a member state and that the Western alliance reduce its military presence in Eastern Europe, Moscow accuses the Ukrainian government of failing to implement the 2015 Minsk Agreement. The Minsk Accord is an international deal sponsored by Germany and France to restore peace to Eastern Ukraine where Russian-backed rebels control a region known as Luhansk and Donetsk. Your reporter spoke with Katrina Vandenhuvel, editorial director and publisher of The Nation magazine, who discusses current efforts to reach a diplomatic solution to the threat of war along Ukraine's eastern border, addressed in her recent article titled The Exit from the Ukraine Crisis That's Hiding in Plain Sight. 
United States, and I don't mean to be callous, I mean, has no vital national security interest in Ukraine. There's a deeply asymmetrical situation where Russia does. And what is essentially a civil war, Scott, has become a proxy war and now has become a geopolitical struggle. Even if NATO decided tomorrow to incorporate Ukraine, and that is so much at the crux of what we're witnessing in terms of the crisis, its own charter, NATO's own charter, would not permit it to bring in Ukraine because of the territorial issues still present in Ukraine, which need to be resolved. And I just think there's enormous amount of talk about NATO in a sense that is delusional because it's not even in play. But what is in play is you have two nuclear-armed powers, the United States, Russia, contesting now in this geopolitical proxy war in a way that could be less World War II, but World War I, you know, a march to folly, kind of miscalculation accidental. Just to, you know, to finish what worries me more than sending troops to Eastern Europe, which President Biden has and NATO sent troops, is that we have special advisors inside Ukraine. I believe there are at least 200 Florida National Guard people and lots of weapons. So if you begin to fund an insurgency with U.S. advisors, they well could be on the front lines. And then you just see the stumble, the miscalculation, and the dangerous peril that that entails. Some people think this is as dangerous a time in terms of U.S.-Russian confrontation as the Cuban Missile Crisis of 1962. Katrina, you mentioned the fact that although the NATO military alliance does not want and really cannot extend an invitation to Ukraine to join the alliance, they can't be seen as, quote-unquote, caving into Russia's demands that Ukraine remain a neutral nation in Eastern Europe. So it seems like this is a matter of saving face. In terms of the Cuban Missile Crisis, the United States removed Atlas missiles from Turkey at the time. I don't think it was known during the negotiations, but there was a quid pro quo, right? I mean, I wonder what you see just in terms of geostrategic issues on the table how face could be saved for both sides so that both Russia and the United States and NATO could back down? So I think the possibility, first of all, you're absolutely right about the Cuban Missile Crisis and the missiles in Turkey. And I think that you could forge an agreement that essentially is kind of recognition of the reality and law and on the ground. So an independent Ukraine in control of its own borders, separatists in Donbass are disarmed, full autonomy for the Russian-speaking region of Donbass, the eastern part within a decentralized Ukraine. But I do think there's this leeway where Ukraine, as I said, even by NATO's own charter, wouldn't fulfill the obligations needed to become a member at this stage. But there could be a moratorium of 10, 15 years, at which point NATO membership is reconsidered. And there is the issue of non-aligned, neutral Ukraine, a bridge between east and west, that is not about appeasement, it's, it's about a reality, for example, Austria, but also Finland. Non-aligned countries have had quality life. It's about building a quality life for the citizens of Ukraine. At the moment, 15,000 civilians have died in the civil war. And the brutality of the trench warfare in the east would continue in this kind of attrition, military kind of low ground warfare. I think part of our problem, Scott, just to do an overarching sense of this, is that too often in this country we've 
been so militarized in our thinking that it's hard to think of tough, persistent, clear diplomacy as an important tool. And too many talk of diplomacy as appeasement when it's something very different. You know, diplomacy is very tough. And part of my concern is the media, certainly in this country, has a different pace. You know what I mean, Scott? I mean, they don't, every day it's imminent and they want action. (laughs) So I just worry there's going to be a lot of pressure to move, move, move. And that impacts the administration, that impacts the political class. And I guess above all, I'm not saying everyone should agree with me. They don't. But at least we should have a debate in this country. And we have not had one. It has been so much one hand clapping that it is a disservice to the idea, last I checked, of all American principle of debate. That was Katrina Vanden Heuvel, editorial director and publisher of The Nation magazine. Find a link to Katrina's recent commentary the exit from the Ukraine crisis that's hiding in plain sight, and related articles by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. In a meeting of the Republican Party leadership in Salt Lake City, Utah, on February 4th, members of the Republican National Committee unanimously and officially declared that the January 6, 2021 attack on the U.S. Capitol to overturn the 2020 presidential election was, quote, legitimate political discourse. The vote came in a resolution censuring GOP representatives Liz Cheney of Wyoming and Adam Kinzinger of Illinois for taking part in the House Select Committee investigating the plot that led to the January 6th insurrection that killed five people. The resolution condemned both representatives for participating in the, quote, persecution of ordinary citizens engaged in legitimate political discourse, unquote. It appears that the Republican Party has moved from tacit support of the political violence that occurred on January 6th to full-throated official support for employing violent insurrection and domestic terrorism in the future as a means to gain and hold on to power. There's a growing realization across the country that the Republican Party's support for voter suppression and election subversion laws along with campaigns to ban books in the teaching of racial history in schools, as well as criminalizing protest, pose an existential threat to U.S. democracy. Your reporter spoke with Jason Stanley, Jacob Herwaski Professor of Philosophy at Yale University, and author of the book, How Fascism Works, The Politics of Us and Them. Here, Professor Stanley responds to the Republican Party's transformation into a political organization that is today systematically plotting the destruction of American democracy. Uh, I think that uh, the remarks about legitimate political discourse, um, you know, they're, they're always trying to go for a plausible deniability. So they say, you know, if you bear down, they'll say, of course, we don't mean the actual physical violence. So, of course, they kind of do mean to legitimate the actual physical violence. It was a terribly violent day. Uh, but they also mean to legitimate the coup, the coup attempt that happened and really all the machinations that are ongoing. Uh, January, the events of January 6th had a particular uh, role. They were planned. Uh, the, the, the presence of everyone there on January 6th was planned. It was part of a larger attempt to overthrow a democratic country. And they're saying that whole attempt, that whole attempt to change, to to get Pence to throw the to try to throw everything into chaos, maybe to uh, to invoke the Insurrection Act, uh, 
possibly uh, that the, they're saying all of that, the, that seizing is uh, is legitimate political discourse. Yeah, it's frightening. Um, one of the things that the nation has been talking about as as the dots are connected increasingly between what was going on in the White House, what was going on with the violence at the Capitol, and the plans to put up fake electors to win a fraudulent electoral college count. Um, it seems that all these things were working together. But as of this date, there's really no accountability for Trump and his inner circle who who plotted this overthrow of democracy and the overturning of a democratic election. I would like for you to assess for us, if you would, the Biden administration, the Democratic Party, and the U.S. Department of Justice and their response thus far to the apparent well-planned plot to overthrow the voters' choice of president in the 2020 presidential election. Well, uh, it really really shows uh, the gap between the United States and a country like Austria, uh, whose whose, uh, leader, you know, had to leave. Uh, the uh, Kurtz, Sebastian, uh, Sebastian Kurtz had had to leave uh, because of corruption. I mean, uh, minor leagues compared to what we're dealing with here. Uh, it's it's extraordinary, and the danger uh, is manifest. The danger is that when you show there's no when there's no accountability, what you're doing is you're signaling that it's all about power, and th- when uh, when the coup plotters and the coup participants um, from uh, President Trump on down throughout the Republican hierarchy, uh, Hawley, uh, other, others participating uh, more actively, uh, when, these, when, when these people are not given accountability, it gives them a kind of, uh, it gives them extra popularity. <laughs> it gives them, it, it legitimates their actions and says, uh, you know, it's you know, look look at what they could get away with. It's kind of an extension of Mr. Of President Trump's uh, former President Trump's open lying. The goal of his open lying was to show that he could get away with totally open lying. Now he's getting away with this. That only strengthens uh, his hand. That's all. That only strengthens his power. Well, Professor Stanley, in your recent article. America is now in fascism's legal phase. You outline the way in which the Republican Party is moving rapidly to suppress the right to vote, ban books, undermine women's rights, ban the right to protest. And at the same time, they're cultivating a violent army of militia groups to move toward what appears to be establishing an authoritarian one-party state. That's an accurate description of what they are trying to do. These Authoritarian forces here have always been intermingled with attacking black history. That's a very long theme here, uh, hearkening back to our Jim Crow anti-democratic days. So, and of course, obviously, Jim Crow is also the era in which you find voting rights for black Americans being severely curtailed, which is the goal of this whole structure. But it also comes with it, this new world autocratic thing which is the Putin, the Orban. It comes with it now, a strongman politics of 
uh, essentially authoritarianism, a one-party state with an authoritarian leader, because it's connecting into this global movement that is probably led by Putin, but, you know, Putin, Bolsonaro, uh, Erdogan in Turkey. Uh, and this is this is what they do. They pay, play this cultural politics, and the strong man uh, is harsh, shows that he's macho and not weak and not feminized by essentially treating his opponents with brutality. And if you looked at Trump, who he resonated with, he resonated with the, the world leaders who did this. That was Jason Stanley, Jacob Erwaski Professor of Philosophy at Yale University and author of the book, How Fascism Works, The Politics of Us and Them. Find a link to Professor Stanley's recent articles and related commentary by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. Leonard Peltier, an activist with the American Indian Movement in the 1970s, has been in prison for the past 46 years after he was convicted of killing two FBI agents on the Pine Ridge Lakota Sioux Reservation in South Dakota in 1975. The incident occurred during a very violent period of conflict between a corrupt tribal chairman and tribal members who wanted to return to a traditional way of life. Peltier, who is today incarcerated at a federal prison in Florida, was diagnosed with coronavirus in early February. Peltier's trial was rife with prosecutorial misconduct, including perjured testimony that resulted in his extradition from Canada where he had fled, the withholding of exculpatory evidence, and more. Peltier's new attorney, Kevin Sharp, is now asking President Biden for executive clemency. Between the lines, Melinda Tuhu spoke with Sharp, who said he won't know about Peltier's health status until his client is released from quarantine. Here, Sharp recounts the worst examples of prosecutorial misconduct, which has kept Leonard Peltier in prison for close to five decades. The thing that really jumps out at you is withholding the ballistics test that shows it wasn't Mr. Peltier's weapon. And that's the big thing. And if that happened today, the conviction, rather, is set aside. It's an easy, no-brainer question. They get around that by changing their theories. I don't think the Court of Appeals would let them get away with that again today either. But you put on top of that the threatened and intimidated witnesses. You don't get an indictment without threatening witnesses. The complete perjury that they suborn with Myrtle Forbear, you don't get him out of Canada without that because there's no evidence. You put on top of that that you had a juror who admitted she was prejudiced against Native Americans and she stays on the jury. All of those things, any one of them should have set this verdict aside. All of them together just drive me nuts because it's one of those, why are we still talking about this? In 1977, when this trial took place, you could get away with that. They now have to admit they don't know because the ballistics test that showed it wasn't Leonard came to light. It took years for it to happen but it came to light. And so now what they say is, but he was there. And so he aided and abetted whoever did this, which is interesting because his co-defendants were acquitted based on self-defense. So, which means they shot them 
but we're, we're not guilty of committing murder because it was self-defense. So then the question becomes, who did Leonard Peltier aid in a bet? Now, the assistant U.S. attorney says, well, I don't know. This is a, from an interview with Steve Croft years ago, back in the 90s. Croft asked him that question, and he said, I don't know, maybe himself. This is ridiculous. We're down some kind of rabbit hole here. What are you talking about? This is gibberish from Alice in Wonderland. It's a legal impossibility. And it's a factual impossibility. Kevin Sharp, at this time, you know, when the struggles of indigenous people have really come to the fore, and when President Biden has specifically said he wants the federal government to build better relationships with them, why is Leonard still in prison? You know, people call Leonard a political prisoner. And I don't use that term because it means so many different things to different people. But I do say he is a prisoner of politics. He's there because you've got a constituency of the president, in this case, another agency of the federal government that cannot and will not admit mistakes were made and improper conduct occurred, even though two courts of appeals have said it. They found that they threatened and intimidated witnesses. This was a holdover of the Hoover FBI. And this FBI needs to let go of that so that they can break from the Hoover FBI. I know Leonard has exhausted all his legal appeals. So what's the next step? He's got a couple of options now. The president of the United States, under his constitutional authority in Article I of the Constitution, has the power at any time to grant clemency, either in the form of a pardon or commuting a sentence. And so that's what we're asking for. But there are a couple of other avenues will work, although they don't set him free. The Bureau of Prisons has the ability to request compassionate release. They can't do it. They can request it. He fits the criteria for that because of his age and his health. It makes no statement at all about whether anybody committed the crime and their sentence was. It just says, because of these things, we are asking the court, as the Bureau of Prisons, to commute his sentence. The other thing they can do is they can grant to serve his sentence as home confinement as part of the COVID release. So the attorney general sent a message to the Bureau of Prisons that says, look, this pandemic is bad. It's worse inside prison. Uh, The death rate is three times higher for incarcerated individuals who catch COVID. And so the attorney general said, go through your population. And for those people who are particularly at risk, for whom it's safe to do that, let them serve the remaining sentence at home. And so some have been released to home confinement, not many, not nearly enough, but they could do that with Leonard as well. He would go home, wear an ankle bracelet uh, and serve his time at home. His only real opportunity is for the president to recognize what happened here, recognize the injustice that took place, put the constitution of the United States ahead of your own political welfare and concern. That was Kevin Sharp, the attorney representing indigenous activist prisoner Leonard Peltier. Peltier's case has generated global support for decades. Learn more about the campaign seeking executive clemency from President Biden by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. Listening to Between the Lines, a weekly program presenting news and analysis 
of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. Between the Lines is produced and distributed by Squeaky Wheel Productions. If you have suggestions for topics and guests, please contact Between the Lines through our website at btlonline.org, where you can hear our current and archive programs and streaming audio and support our show. There you can also subscribe to free weekly podcasts, program summaries, and interview transcripts. Follow us on Facebook at Between the Lines Radio News Magazine and on Twitter at BTL Radio News. Thanks for listening on WMBR in Cambridge, Massachusetts, WBCR in Great Barrington, Massachusetts, WLXU in Lexington, Kentucky, dozens of other community radio stations across the U.S. and abroad, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Our theme music was written by Richard Hill and performed by Mikata. This week's program was produced by Susan Bramhall, Mary Hunt, Anna Manzo, Bob Nixon, Melinda Tuhus, and Jeff Yates. For Between the Lines, I'm Scott Harris.